I'm Barbara Bray. Welcome to my Rethinking Learning podcast, where I have conversations with inspirational educators, thought leaders, and change agents. Ah, this is so great. I am so happy to have Connie Hamilton here. Connie, this is so great you're here. I've been wanting to talk to you for so long. Oh, me too. This is so fun. And I mean, I got your book and I just, I can't wait to talk about it, but we're going to talk about you first. So in fact, I'm going to tell a little bit about you. So I'm going to boast about you. Is that okay? Sure. (laughs) So Connie Hamilton is a curriculum director in Saranac, Michigan, an educational consultant working with school districts across the United States. And I know you are. You're all over the place now. I am. A little in Canada, Virgin Islands, too. Oh, across the world. I'll change that. Across the world. (laughs) Now, Connie is a certified trainer in effective classroom questioning, teacher evaluation tools, visible learning, and supports teacher learning in the area of literacy. And we really need that, Connie. This is, you know, this is where kids really need the support and teachers need the support. So this is great. Connie is also the author of Hacking Homework, and we'll talk a little bit about that book. And her new book just came out, right? I know. Literally, I just got seven boxes of hacking questions today. Oh, my gosh. Oh, gosh. Hacking questions. 11 answers that create a culture of inquiry in your classroom. Ta-da! Welcome, Connie. Thank you. (laughs) Oh, this is amazing. I was looking at your book and I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't wait. So, but before we get into your book, we need to learn about you. So why don't you give us a little bit about your background and your family growing up? Well, I grew up in Michigan and I was an only child for 10 years. It was just my mom and me for a long time. And so I kind of grew up with that only child mentality And during that time, I had to find a lot of different ways to entertain myself. So I, like many, many teachers as a child, played school constantly. And I would dig through the trash and get like old worksheets and take stacks and stacks of the same worksheet home. And I would have like what I would perceive to be my smart kids fill them out. And I would take pride in giving big A pluses at the top. And then, you know, I'd have a struggling learner and I took a little bit of joy. I must admit when I was a seven or eight year old putting red X's all over their papers and asking them to do it over. But That's me, too. I was doing it over. (laughs) So I was both my class and and the teacher. And I I spent a lot of time in my room by myself just playing school and with my little stuffed animals all in a row and and so forth. So I I knew that I always wanted to go into education. And I was a pretty good uh, math student. And my mom encouraged me to capitalize on some of the math skills that I had. So I actually entered college at Michigan State University as an aeronautical engineering major. Whoa, and I was wait a minute, be I gotta write engineer. that one down. I didn't know that. <laughs> and I, uh, I, my heart was always still with kids and education, but she, she really encouraged me to, to check out that field. And I think I took two or three calculus classes at Michigan State and thought, oh boy, this is not for me. And I changed my major, and I didn't tell my mother for almost a year 
that I changed my major to education. <laughs> and by then I was so far into my methods classes that I, I just kind of kept going in that direction and came out and became a teacher. So okay. it's fantastic. How did your mom take it? <laughs> you know, um, at first she thought, well, maybe you could get a degree in education and maybe a minor in business and you could open a daycare center. <gasps> she just really discouraged me from education. And, you know, sadly, there's, there's not as much um, recognition that that teachers deserve. And I think even way back then when I was in college, she recognized that teachers work really hard and, and don't get, don't get enough accolades or, um, perks that come along with that. And, and I think she just wanted me to be able to receive some benefits and be proud of what I was doing. And I am very proud of what I have accomplished. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, I never thought that I would wake up every day and love what I do. And I do. Uh, and you started so young. You probably had all your stuffed animals in a row with their names. <laughs> oh, I did. <laughs> I love it. Uh, you said till you were 10. What happened when you were 10? When I was 10, when I was nine, my mom was remarried. And then when I was 10, my first sister was born. Ah. And then, uh, so I was no longer an only child. And then when I was uh, 14, my second sister was born. So to kind of put that into perspective, my youngest sister was in kindergarten when I left for college. Wow. <laughs> that must have been a different family, you know, dynamics. And, you know, did you help out a lot around the house? Is that what happened? Oh, yes. I was constantly referenced by the family as the built-in babysitter, uh... which I thought was really awesome when I was... 10, 11, 12, but when I was 16 and 17 and had my own social life, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the oldest of uh, four girls, so I kind of remember some of that myself, but uh, I got um, used to it. I didn't get thrown into it at 10, so that must have been, a, a, you know, woke you up. <laughs> it did. It did. Uh, well, um, you're also not the uh, only only one that they're showering everything. You know what I mean? It's different when you're the only child. But it, it is, is different. It is different. But you did have a lot of time, and you and your stuffed animals had a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> they were my siblings for 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. And so as a student, you were really good, but were there any struggles that you had? Or do you feel like it was just really good for you? You know, school was was really, really good for me. I I did very well and I, you know, I did my homework and some, some classes I worked a little harder in than others. And yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't really have a lot of difficulties going through school. And I do think that that was maybe a disadvantage for me because in my first few years as an educator, it was hard for me to relate to students who struggled because I never really experienced that as a learner myself. And I embraced challenge. And so, you know, when Rubik's Cube came out, I'll tell you what, I, I was going to fix that thing. And, and I wouldn't quit until I had it solved. And so that idea of I don't get this when it just seems so clear to me, it, I really had to relearn how to be a learner after I became a teacher because those are the students that are 
really in most need of a teacher who knows how to deliver curriculum and and learning. That's really um, honorable because, you know, uh, as a teacher, many of us think we, you know, when you first start, you're all excited. You're, you think you're going to make a difference in everyone's life. And then you just blah and do the, (laughs) and that (laughs) that one child that you wanted to help was, you know, you just did all the wrong things. So I love that you're open to learning and there is that about unlearning, relearning and learning again. I mean, I think that is really important. And uh, uh, very big of you, because when you have a good, successful life or a life that things were just seem to be, work for you, and then all of a sudden you're thrown into a situation that isn't as easy, some people quit. We don't want them to quit. We want to find ways so you can give them those ideas. So you, how long did you teach and what did you teach? I, when I first graduated from Michigan State, I couldn't find a teaching job in Michigan. We were, we had a lot of teachers here and not a lot of jobs. And so I took my first position in Houston, Texas, and I taught there for a couple of years. And that's actually kind of a, an interesting story. So I was, I was afraid to teach kids to read because it's such a big responsibility. And I, as a first-year teacher, I didn't think that I was really prepared. So they hired me as a third-grade teacher, and I thought, oh, great, kids will know how to read by then. And I went down and got my classroom, and I think I had, I don't know, 12 or 13 students in my classroom, really, really small class. And I taught those students for about two or three weeks and got really close with them. And one day, the principal pulled me into her office and said, you know, our first-grade numbers are really high, and our third-grade numbers are really low. So I'm going to give you a couple of days off and the weekend, and I want you to get ready for a new group of first graders. Wait a minute. And I they, remember. Oh, my gosh. They yes. moved you in the, and then moved you to first grade? They diffused my third graders into other third grade classrooms. Oh, and wow. then they, they surfaced off a few students from each of the first grade classrooms to make them a little smaller and created a new classroom for me. And I was terrified with the responsibility of teaching first graders how to read. I, I was just, every day I thought, oh my goodness, what if I do this wrong? What if, what if they aren't good readers? And, and as a little, a little sidebar, bar, I'm, I'm sure if some of your listeners can, can hear, I have, I'm from the Midwest and I was teaching in Texas. And uh, the vowels don't exactly come out of my mouth the same way that they were coming out of the mouths of the students in my classroom. And so learning phonics and teaching students to decode words when the phonemes are a little different in the way that I pronounce them versus how they pronounce them was just another added challenge. Wow. I never even thought of that, but you're right. Oh, gosh. I know what I came from Maryland and moved to California, and I don't think I have an accent, but it was interesting. People couldn't understand some of the things I said, and it's we're in the, it's just so different, you know, when you're in the same country and these people don't understand you. So how'd it go then after you worked? You it know? went well. Uh, I was a little homesick. And I um, met my husband. We, he was in Michigan, and we, were, we got engaged, and we had an opportunity to move back to Michigan to be a little closer to family, and we jumped all over that. So we came back to Michigan and started our family, and I worked as a teacher in Michigan. I taught eighth grade. I, taught, I was a Title I teacher back then. It was called Chapter One. 
where I worked with struggling students there in small groups and uh, did some push-in with classrooms. Those are all the more current buzzwords. I don't remember what we called it back (laughs) then, but then when I was teaching eighth grade English, I was laid off. We did the last in, first out kind of method of layoffs. And so one summer I was laid off and the union director, I, at that time I was a title, I actually, I take that back. I was a title teacher at that time. And the, and the union president called and said, all right, we have a position for you and it's eighth grade English. So you either have to accept that position or resign. And I thought, oh, middle schoolers, they will eat me alive, <laughs> but I needed the job. So I took it. And uh, I really enjoyed middle school even more than I thought. And I actually stuck with middle school for a while. I got my administrative degree and my first administrative job was in a middle school. I was an assistant principal and a principal at the middle school. And then I came to Saranac and was the elementary principal and curriculum director. And I've been in Saranac ever since. Oh, that is. Now, I love middle school. It's tough. It is tough. But I love the kids. I love the kids because they really are still... I don't want to say babies, but they still need the love and the care because it's scary at that time and that age. Oh, yes. And they really and there's connect. such a big difference between the little sixth graders coming in and the eighth graders that are going out. There's a lot of growth that happens in those three years. Ah, uh, well, I want to take a break just to talk about your family and then we'll get back a little bit back to what you did in the schools um, because you said you got married and moved back. Your husband's name His name is Paul. And you have children. We do. We have three children. We've been married for 24 years. And we have three awesome kids that are all very, very different. Everyone always says that, right? Yeah, but they are. But we, Mm -hmm. we treat them sometimes the same, but they are different. So tell me how they're different. So I have our oldest is Paul III, and we call him Trey for the third. And he is a junior at the College for Creative Studies in Detroit. It's a pretty prestigious design school, and he is an illustration major there. And so he's looking at pursuing a career to tap into his drawing talents, and he's really, really loving school there. And I would label him as, as a student. He was your AP everything. AP Stats, AP Calc, AP Art, AP Physics. <laughs> oh, wow. He, you know, he, he was that kid. And so he would learn no matter what. And he, and he still is. He's, and he's an illustration, though. That, I know, right? How did he, I'm just, I'm go, I know I'm going off on, your, you know, but just tell me, how did he get into how that? How did that happen? Yeah. Well, he is similar to the story, my parallel story. So all through high school, we set out a scope and sequence of coursework that he was going to take because he was going to be an engineer. That was the field, and he took a lot of science and math classes, but he found a lot of joy in his electives classes. He was in the band and took art classes. And every chance he got, he wanted to take another art class. And at parent-teacher conferences of his senior year, we were we had already applied and been accepted to a an engineering school in uh, the Flint area called Kettering, and they're very exclusive to just engineering majors. And I sat at parent teacher conferences across from his art teacher, and his art teacher said, "You know, before you go, 
I really, really think that you should go visit the College for Creative Studies. And it had been, I don't know, three or four times that he mentioned the College of Creative Studies to me. And so I thought, all right, I'm, I'll do it for my son to, you know, tack that off the list to say, okay, we checked it out, but you're going to be an engineer. And we went to the school and it's ama- it was just amazing. And you could just see that he was in heaven and it was his people and he just fit there. And we signed him up and never looked back. Passion. This best decision yeah. that that we made and and he made. So he thanks us every day for it and he works his tail off. It's his passion. And it you know, is. when we talk about passion and and being like you, you wouldn't I don't think you would have been happy as an aeronautical engineer. <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> So apparently I wouldn't be talking to you right now. I don't think if I were, (laughs) well, you never know. (laughs) You seem to be very entrepreneurial. You never know what you would have done. (laughs) So, uh, and your other children. So I have Luke, he's our middle boy and he is a Marine. He, uh, just received his first station and he will be leaving this summer for Japan for three years. So we're very, very proud of him. But of course, I'm sure you can imagine mixed emotions. You know, I'm I'm already missing him and he hasn't even left the United States yet. So, uh, we're, we're really proud of him and he, he going through school, he struggled a little more. He was definitely not your stereotypical AP student. And uh, so going through school through his eyes really helped me become a better educator as well. And then there's Allison. She's our youngest and she just turned 17. She's a junior in high school. And Allie would like to be an autism consultant and a special education teacher. And she is every teacher's dream. She she has had some supports, and learning is not easy for her, but she works very hard. She's the teacher when, she's the student that when the teacher says, hey, you can come in before school or during lunch to get extra help, she's there. That's her. Oh, what an eclectic group, but I bet you they all support each other. They do. They're yeah. very close siblings. Oh. They Not so much when they were younger, but now that they're all in their teens and up, they're very, very close, all three of them. Oh, what a lovely family. I did see pictures. So they are, they're beautiful. And, Thank you. And it, it's just uh, amazing when you do things that you love and everyone's supporting each other. And it seems like everyone's supporting you because you're traveling all over and doing so much. So you went so fast saying you went from a principal to curriculum director and now you're a consultant. Yes. Are you still a, a curriculum director too? Or? Yes, I still, I, I am having a hard time letting go of Saranac. I um, really have established some deep roots there and those teachers have bled <laughs> for their students and it's just such a privilege to be able to work with them and to to watch them continue to grow. And we've worked really, really hard in Saranac. And it's it's now time that we're beginning to reap the benefits. And I kind of want to be around for the celebration, too. So I am still part-time in Saranac. I work about 60 days a year there as the curriculum director and um, 
you know, I, I, I do it out of loyalty and thankfulness and it's a very, very small community and they've been good to me. And so I, I want to pay back the, that return. That's actually kind of, I mean, to me, that's a perfect uh, balance because as a, as a consultant, I do coaching, I get to work in the schools, but it's not the same. Uh, I'm not part of, you know, watching it grow. I did, I used to, but I'm not doing that now. And I miss it. You get to, when you go there, it's like family, right? It is. Yeah. Especially when you know the kids and they're growing and you see them grow. It's just wonderful. What made you write your first book with a star, that hacking homework? Because I want to talk about this. Uh, there was a lot of discussions on Twitter about it. And I guess shared about, your how, about homework or about star and I working together. Oh, let's do Star and You, and then we'll go to homework, because then we'll be a little controversial. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's true. That book is a little more controversial than the next one. Yeah. So Star and I met on Twitter, and she was writing a questioning book, ironically, and she asked me to contribute to the book, which I it was the first time that anyone had asked me to contribute. So it's the first time that I ever had anything really published in a book. And I offered a contribution and was really proud of it. And from there, we stayed connected professionally on Twitter. And I would reach out to her every so often. And of course, I think most people know that Star has a very successful blog. And and for a long time, she did Periscope, daily Periscopes. And I think it was uh, Teaching by the Dashboard. And... I, I would listen in the morning. I would listen to that and box her back and forth. And, and our, we grew a friendship through that. And I would have always been passionate about questioning. And I pitched this idea of writing a questioning book to Mark Barnes, who's the publisher of Times 10 Publications, the publisher of the Hack Learning series. And at the time, he wasn't ready to publish a questioning book. And he was really wanting a book on homework. And I have a lot of passion about homework. I have strong opinions about homework. And I had never written. And so I reached out to Star, knowing that she had been very successful in printing with both him and and publishing outside as well, and asked her if she would be willing to co-author a book on homework with me. And, And she agreed. And it worked out perfectly because my students are, my, my students, my children <laughs> are secondary age and most of my teaching experience is at the K-8 level, the elementary level. And she's just the reverse. Her son at the time was in elementary school, but her teaching experience was at the high school. So we had both a parent and educational lens of both sides of question, of uh, looking at homework. And so we had a lot of powwows and a lot of conversations about the good, bad, and the ugly around homework as we wrote that book. And we did a lot of it on FaceTime and Google. (laughs) (laughs) It's really amazing when you can do video conferencing and then you can write in a Google Doc together. (laughs) It's It's almost like being there. I did. We actually met after face-to-face. The first time we met face-to-face, we had already had the contract. We had already been writing homework. And I hopped on a plane and said, you know, maybe it would be better if we were actually in the same room. We might get a lot more done. So I hopped on a plane and I went and stayed with her for a weekend and we just had the best time. And we've been dear, dear friends ever since. Oh, she's just amazing. And and having someone that 
you know, you really have that connection with, be able to write. It's it's just wonderful. So I'll just let you know, we there was a tweet storm on homework last week. And it was basically, you know, how it wrecks kids' lives. <laughs> oh. All right. So I'm just curious. <laughs> It, there was a lot of back and forth. I think I had over 400 responses and I wish I had gotten you and or star or both into the conversations. But um, so where, what are your, you know, what are the main things that you want people to know in your book and about homework? The main thing is neither star nor I are anti-homework. We don't go out preaching that you know, homework's going to ruin kids. However, when we look at all of the things that we can do to support learning, homework, I wouldn't, I wouldn't rate at the tippy top. And so when we look at opportunities that students have outside of the classroom, which is where t- homework typically takes place, to me as an educator and a parent, there are things that have more value for students' time. And that's not always true. But I would say as a default, that's, that's where my belief stands. And as a mom, especially, uh, I, I think this became really prevalent with Luke. Uh, with, with Trey, it was more of a, why do I need to do this? I know it all anyway. It was that kind of argument. But with Luke, it really was about relevance because some of the things that he was bringing home as homework literally was, it was garbage. It was, define these 30 definitions of words, and he literally would copy paste from dictionary.com. And when he didn't do his homework, it was me who, and his dad, you know, my husband and I would be chasing him down and saying, you know, do your homework. And then as I began to travel, I found that the precious few moments that I had with my son, I spent fighting with him about homework and punishing him for not having his homework and grounding him for having a zero. And that became the first question that I asked him nearly every day is, do you have any missing assignments? Is your homework done? And that isn't how I wanted to build my relationship with my son when I was gone. And that became really, really obvious um, when time was shorter and shorter and shorter. And so I began to kind of resent homework <laughs> at that point. Yeah. And that was really the heart of when Star and I were writing. Luke was still in high school when we were writing that book. And we would just share horror stories about, we, I would take pictures of homework and, and say, look at what Luke is asked to do and look at what Allie is doing. And, and that isn't to say that all teachers give homework that doesn't have value. There certainly were times when I could see that my children were inspired and they were excited to share what they had learned. And, you know, they didn't want to go to bed because they were so intrigued by what it was that they're learning. But I found that that was not the norm. That was the exception, not the rule. And I, when asked, teachers would say, well, homework teaches responsibility. And that's definitely a trigger for me because I, I strongly disagree that homework teaches responsibility. I think homework expects responsibility. 
and it has a built-in punitive response when students aren't naturally responsible and don't do the homework. And we don't do anything to actually help them to gain responsibility skills. We just hold them inside for recess and say, that'll earn you. <laughs> and yeah. uh, that, that just doesn't resonate well with me. And then when you look at some of the, the research that's out there, especially at the elementary level, certainly we want learning to happen and it naturally occurs everywhere. So take advantage of reading with your child. Take advantage of, you know, pointing out where math is everywhere. But to sit down and force students to do a reading log or do a worksheet or, or write their spelling words 12 times, I would say sometimes they're better off to get a good night's sleep so they're well rested and prepared to learn from you the next day than they are to cry all night long and fight with their parents and that's what they spend their dinner table time doing is arguing over homework. So I'm going to push your book to the people that were in that conversation because you're saying all the things that came out. Everything came out. I mean, the, the, especially parents. And there are parents that get upset when teachers don't give homework. So there's just the two sides. So luckily with the two of you, for, with your background as parents and teachers at the different levels, you wrote a wonderful book. So people need that. So let's go to your next one, your new one. Yay! Yay, hacking questions. Yes. Oh, I just, well, I'm just going to start with one that really stuck out. The IDK bucket. Kick the bucket. Yeah, kick that mm -hmm. bucket. Tell them what that is. Well, IDK is that I don't know response. And students often will give you a shrug shoulders or they'll just wait you out. They'll just stare at you and not respond or or you know, I don't know, and go ask someone else, that type of thing. And so that particular chapter speaks to strategies that teachers can use to address I don't know responses and tries to really shine a light on what is the purpose for asking a student a question? Is, is the student, is the purpose for asking a question to reveal that a student knows the answer? And so therefore, if they don't know, you just move on to somebody else who does. To me, that's really not the purpose. And so if a student doesn't know, it's a really natural and organic way to reveal a growth mindset and say, awesome, then let's figure it out together. How can we fill that gap if it currently exists? Because that's what we're here for, is to tackle those things that you don't know yet. And so putting a little bit of a spin on that I don't know is not really an answer. It might be a start or a preface or to say, well, you know, I'm not really sure or I, I can't be positive or I don't know yet, but there has to be some kind of a comma and that comes after that. And so that's really kind of what that whole chapter is about is how do we put I don't know to rest? So you have 11 answers like that. I mean, 11 chapters, basically. So in every chapter, you're, you come up with different um, different ideas for... Different hacks. Of course, hacking questions. And, and I like the way that you have strategies. You, uh, you have one that says, hear the music. What does that mean? So hear the music is about listening for right thinking and not just look, searching for right answers. So the music behind an answer is, is the progression of thought, a logical progression of thought that can 
be replayed in a similar but different circumstance and allow students to still reach success. Whereas if we're answer getting, now we just kind of jump to the end and that progression, there might be a lot of alarms that we're not listening to along the way. Maybe the student got the right answer because they copied off of somebody else, or maybe they got the right answer because they had a lucky guess, or maybe they had the right answer, but they had a great misconception with how they got to that answer that can't be replicated in a similar but different situation. And so listening for the music is thinking, not answers. So that chapter attempts to help teachers to really hone in on thinking by posing questions that reveal justification and logic and and thinking rather than just who knows the answer to X question. Oh, teachers need that. You probably, as I, you know, just giving them some prompts and some questions as ideas. Because a lot of times, like you said, I observe classrooms and I see sometimes teachers will ask a question and someone gives the wrong answer and they move on to someone else, just like you were saying with the other concept. It's like there's no deep thinking there. And if so, I like I like that idea. So let me just see. There is a few others in here. Well, you had some things about um, scaffolding to trigger student thinking, which is kind of the same idea that you were talking about in that. And reflective questions. Here's the thing that I'm looking at is how do you get students to come up with the questions? Do you, you know, do you have them answer with a question or do you have them come up with some questions? There, there are a lot of different protocols that are within the book and there's an appendix that's filled with talk protocols that have different purposes. And, and so I, I think that you know, ultimately, we want students to be able to pose inquiry-based questions and be able to frame their curiosities in a way that they can explore them. And helping students to be able to do that is is a joy. And it's a progression. You, know, you don't just put students in a group and say, okay, go around and ask and answer great questions to one another. And so trying to evolve that process of the first thing is focusing on on speaking and listening skills. So what is a question? What is a clarifying question? What is a challenging question? What's a justification question? What's a reflection question? So looking at different types of questions, uh, there's there's a piece in that chapter that speaks to the question and answer relationship. So when students give an answer to a question that comes from their schema and we want their response coming from evidence in the text, that's a different kind of thought process. So if you can teach students that that's an author and me question or that's a right there question or that's a think and search question, then if they give you a response like, I don't know, I can't find it in the book, the teacher doesn't have to point out where the answer might be able to be found or struggle through how can you prompt that student to think more deeply if the student knows that a right there question is a question you can put your an answer you can put your finger on but a think and search answer is one that you have to synthesize information throughout a piece of text or throughout learning, then the prompt becomes, ah, you're right. You can't find the answer because it's not a right there kind of answer. This time you're going to have to think and search. 
and it prompts students to shift the way that they approach the level of thought that they put into responding to a question by just actually triggering a, a level of thought. Wow, you just got me triggered with the level of thought. <laughs> That's why they call you the questioning guru. <laughs> oh, maybe so. No, that's why you wanted to write this book. I can tell now. It this is. has been really, you've been holding this in and wanting this for so long. And it's its so wonderful that you actually have it. I, it is. its I've been wanting to write this book for years. Uh, and uh, um, some of it just kind of wrote itself. I've been doing professional learning in questioning for years. And so a lot of anybody who's been in my PD before this book came out will recognize you know, some of my voice in there because a lot of it just comes straight from what we do in the face-to-face learning opportunities. Well, teachers need this. I'm so glad that you're still, you know, getting out there and working with teachers, but you also now have a book that they can, you know, refer to. Well, I'm not, let's don't give too much away. I want them to buy your book. (laughs) (laughs) I want them to use it. I want them to bring you into their schools and work with them because I think, Connie, um, I've seen, you know, I actually do things on questions similar to what you say, but I haven't done it this way, and I like what you're doing. And I think that people need to kind of reflect on how they're responding to kids and also how they're using questions. And I'm just very grateful for uh, Mark Barnes that he said, yes, now this is time. (laughs) Oh, you and me both. I often say to people, because there's so much focus on the level of questions, and so when they hear that I do workshops on questioning, they often first go to high-level questions, low-level questions, you know, that type of thing, which is important. We definitely want to be complex in the way that we're posing questions and allow students to think deeply. However, there's another side of questioning, and that's that's the verb of the delivery and the atmosphere in which questions are asked. And that's what this book really focuses on is it's the art of questioning and the verb questioning more so than the noun. There are lots of question examples that I use to kind of illustrate different points and so forth. So not that there aren't I don't talk about questions as a noun, but it really is more about how do you pose questions. And so what I love about that is that every chapter has something that teachers can do tomorrow. And it's just relevant. It's not, I mean, there's, as in all of the hack learning books, there's a what you can do tomorrow section. And I was very, very mindful about those sections that literally you don't have to study, you don't have to prep anything, you don't have to write a lesson plan, you don't have to take a whole week. You could literally say, oh, I'm in my jammies tonight and this is something that I could do tomorrow right away in my classroom. And that was really, really important for for me to provide for teachers in every single chapter. Oh, okay. On that note, (laughs) we're going to make sure people know about this book because I think teachers, that's what they want. They're so busy. They're so, and just to be able to take, you know, one area and then use it tomorrow, that's going to be just amazing. So I hope they do and they hope they share. And thank you. This has been wonderful. I learned about you and your family and and your stuffed animals too. So that was great. Thank you. Thank you. This was so much fun. Thank you so much. I imagine one of those stuffed animals is probably an aeronautical engineer now. 
<laughs> we'll have to check and see. Maybe they need to make one. <laughs> Thank you so much, Connie. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Rethinking Learning Podcast and my conversation with Connie Hamilton. Look for a complimentary blog post about Connie and resources and links just for you. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review on iTunes and tweet out the post with the hashtag Rethink underscore learning. You can also subscribe to my website, barbarabray.net, to receive announcements and updates so you don't miss any of the conversations.